Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you again. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Proverbs 5, which, if I'm not mistaken, is on page 530 of your <coughs> pew Bibles. Uh, first things first, as you uh, encounter this passage and the heading on my uh, Bible, it says, Warning Against Adultery. You may be wondering, what's the suitability like of this sermon for young children? And I can just tell you um, right off, I'm sensitive to the fact that we have some young it's great. I love having squirmy little ones in worship. There's a long history of pedigree that going back uh, to the Old Testament. You should know I have no intention of being salacious this morning. Okay, so from my, I mean, you, you make a parenting decision, but from my point of view, it's fine for your kids to be here. Uh, I'm not going to be salacious. At the same time, I want you to consider how soon these young ones will need these words of wisdom. How crucial to capture art with the wisdom of God's worldview, obviously in age-appropriate ways uh, for our children. But when you consider all of the messaging that our kids are exposed to concerning the meaning of sex and romance, etc., our problem as parents is not that we're talking about this too much to our children. Sexual folly is looking for you, <clears throat> and it is looking for your children. So we cannot afford to be squeamish, we cannot afford to warn, we cannot paint as negative what God intends by his design as beautiful. And so I was so appreciative for the way that Ian led the service this morning uh, and framing the worship really as a matter of the contest between wisdom and folly. That's, that's right at the heart of what we are considering uh, this morning in Proverbs 5. So the pivotal theme uh, in the book of Proverbs, I believe, and specifically through the first nine chapters in the book of Proverbs, is the sharp distinctions between the way of wisdom on the one hand and the way of folly on the other. And so in our passage today, and, and really it continues for the next few chapters, the father, right, as a father speaking to a son, turns his attention to that distinction, wisdom and folly, and he does so particularly in the next few chapters with reference to sexual immorality as contrasted with sexual integrity. So I'm going to read the entire chapter for us, uh, and then we're going to kind of consider it a couple of chunks at a time, uh, listening to what this wise father has to say uh, to his son. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. My son, <clears throat> attentive to my wisdom... Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as, the, as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to shale. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline! And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin 
in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquity of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. If you would, pray with me just one more time. Lord, we ask that you would apply your word to our hearts this morning. Where necessary, would you restrain folly? And in each of our lives, would you help this be a path, a step on the path of becoming increasingly wise? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, what we see here, right at the outset of Proverbs chapter 5, the first uh, six verses, we see a warning given by a father to a son concerning temptation before the time of temptation. This warning is given before the son knows he's vulnerable, perhaps to us today, before we might even have awareness that we are vulnerable. What the son needs to know and what we need to know is that we are all vulnerable to sin, uh, to temptation, and to to sexual immorality even particularly, right? If we assume that we are invulnerable to this type of temptation, we will not be vigilant, and that in turn actually makes us more susceptible. So here's what the father is doing. He's taking the theme of Proverbs 4.23. You maybe just run your eyes up the page a little bit. It's right there. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. He's taking up the theme of keeping the heart with all vigilance and applying it to the matter of sexual morality for the better part of three chapters. We're just obviously looking at one. But it's critical to understand the centrality of the heart in the matter of sexual integrity. Here's a a premise for you. The body follows the heart. The body follows the heart. The body moves towards what the heart attaches itself to. So if we would avoid the affair the way this father wants his son to avoid the affair, we must have a prior concern on what we are allowing to nourish our hearts. Now let me offer a quick warning of my own. Please do not tune out this morning as you feel like you're not at that stage of life, okay? As Ian was helping us reflect, in back of the forbidden woman in Proverbs stands Lady Folly. There's a message for everyone here, including the youths and the unmarried. Folly would draw each of us along in sin of all different kinds, leading us to our destruction. And she would love to have you think that you are immune to sexual immorality because you're not married Or because maybe even today the thought disgusts you. Now for another caveat. The author of Proverbs is not singling out women as being more predatorial than men. That's not what's happening here. This again is a form of instruction from a father to a son 
And the core issue is not what the forbidden woman does. The core issue is what's being grown in his heart. In other words, this passage is not centrally a contest between naive men and predatorial women. It is instead a contest between lady wisdom and folly. Which, which one will this young man wed himself to? Which one will we? If he binds himself to Lady Folly, as expressed by the forbidden woman in this chapter, what that will primarily reveal is a lack of attachment in his heart to God. Now, the chief strategy of temptation that we see in these verses is the strategy, these first six verses, the strategy of deception. So in verse 3, we're told that her lips drip honey and smooth words. But that's immediately contrasted in verses 4 and 5 with an end to those words that is bitter, piercing, and leading to death. This reflects what Hebrews 11 calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the dad wants his son to know before the encounter ever happens, son, she is going to seem awfully enticing. Words that are smooth and sweet, but it does not end the way you think it will. Now, having said that, the tempted deception can only succeed if the son's heart is willing to go along with the deception. Which is why, as we said at the outset, vigilance of heart is of the utmost urgency. So that leads us to do a little bit of uh, an anatomy of sin, anatomy of, uh, of sin and folly. We want to explore a couple of the tactics of deception at work which in turn will help us to better receive the father's countermeasures. The father's got some countermeasures, but we need to understand uh, the foe, if you will. So there's a couple of tactics of sin that we can, uh, we can acknowledge going on here. Here's the first one. The deceptiveness of sin cultivate our participation in our own destruction by going to work on our and pride, by going to work on our self and pride. So, for example... As life gets hard, and everyone knows right, those realities to one extent or another, as life gets hard, we may begin to, to bathe our hurt, our disappointments. They might even be genuine disappointments. We begin to bathe those in self-pity. Self-pity begins to breed a sense of what I think I deserve versus what it is that I am actually getting. I might even to think I'm, I'm the only one who really and truly sees the situation for what it is. One who actually knows what I should be getting. As that, as that activates a sense of, of pride and self-reliance that nobody else understands, we can take, it's, right, it's possible to take that inward and nurse it in secrecy, right? The false co- uh, comparison begins to grow between the inside of my relationship and the external features of my image projection, right? There's a, there's a, there can kind of come to be an incongruity there. At first, this happens in the inner thoughts. But if that progression is left unchecked for any length of time, actions may begin to peek their head out of the ground to see what it is we could get away with that could help nurse that pity a little bit. And the first time, the first time that is seemingly reciprocated by the overtures of another, it can feel charged with buzz, energy, 
excitement. Let me be absolutely clear. That is not love. It might feel like it to an extent. It is a deadly and poisonous imitation. Lust feeds on discontent. It always wants what it does not have. It is always angling for more than the last time. It is never satisfied. So what's happening in the situation that we've just kind of, kind of described? It's the, it's the double whammy of a person who is blind to his or her danger, while at the same time thinking he really sees more clearly than anyone else. And so a person in that situation may not only resist seeking counsel from God's word and from God's family, we might actually refuse good counsel where it is given. A former pastor of mine uh, told the story one time of a close friend who was spending time alone with a woman who was not his wife. Going to dinner with her, movies with her. The pastor warned this friend to quit doing that, right? It's a treacherous path. The friend said, no, I'll be fine, no big deal, nothing would ever happen. What happened is given enough time, the body followed the heart. He had been warming his heart at the, at the seat of forbidden fires with closeness and companionship that he was not offering to his wife. And before he knew it, he was setting fire to those whom he really loved. Part of wisdom, friends, is having the humility to recognize that if I walk alone, I am not wise. And I do not see the end from the beginning of the very real threats that we face. In reality, contrary to the whispers of pride and self-pity, the fact is that the sin inside of us is much more dangerous than the hardships outside of us. So consider today, where are you giving in to pity or proud independence? And what, may, what ways might you be vulnerable to cutting yourself off from the word of God and the fellowship of brothers and sisters who would help to watch your back? Here's the second aspect of, of sin's deceptive tactics. So, so building on right, the, the, uh, the appeal to pride and self-pity, we find in our passage that the cultivation of pride and self-pity takes place specifically by means of what I'm calling a word contest. A word contest. It's been this way ever since Genesis 3, hasn't it? God says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The serpent says, no, you won't. In fact, he's against you, not for you. A word contest. Same world, same environment right? Different interpretation. The same is true in Proverbs chapter 5 here. The, this is a contest between the words of the father and the honeyed words of lady folly, between the words of wisdom and the words of foolishness. Sin proceeds on the back of false promises. If, if it didn't do that, it wouldn't have any appeal, right? No one sins out of a sense of duty. No one says, I got to fill up my quota. I don't really want to. No, nobody sins out of a sense of duty. We, and, and the moment that we sin, we sin because we choose to. We sin because we want to. We sin because there is an allure or a promise that sin is not actually going to deliver on, but is nevertheless very captively offering to us. Notice the forbidden woman's appeal in verse, verse 4 is as sharp 
as a two-edged sword. But it is appeal, it, it, it's an appeal that will cut to pieces. Guess what else is sharp as a two-edged sword? The Word of God. Thinking of passages like Hebrews 4.12, right? This sword, the sword of God's Word, it does pierce but not with the intention of killing the child of God. Rather, it's the piercing of removing cancer and tumors and toxins, right? It's it's, it's a surgical strike, so to speak, intended to purge folly and to heal. And here's the bottom line, friends. We will all be cut by one word or the other. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of which. Will we be cut to pieces? Or cleansed of folly. Howard Hendricks, uh, the late uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, was an article summarizing one of his ministries that he conducted while he was there. Uh, he he. This is this. Is, I mean, just the the sheer numbers are sad. Um, but he 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 compiled findings from work with 246 fallen pastors into sexual immorality over the course of his, his life and ministry. And uh, it's, uh, uh, it's very sobering, um, very enlightening. He, he, he compiled four key findings that he felt like were um, kind, of, kind of at the core in, in, in just about all 246 cases. I'm only going to mention one. Um, that, that's, it's pretty easily accessible online if you want to read, read some of his other findings. But one finding... One finding that was true in 246 out of 246 cases was that each of the men was made more vulnerable because he had all but ceased having a daily time of personal prayer, Bible reading, and worship. I understand you're giving yourselves to this theme, what it means to meet with God in your, in your 930 hour. I'd encourage you to to make that a priority, but how, how, da- so, so this is, but this is, this is pastor. So think about this, right? It, this, this doesn't mean he, he wasn't saying that these pastors weren't spending any time in the word. They were, but it had become entirely professionalized. Their time in the word was given to the presentation to others, bypassing the application to the, to the self time in the word became about important. Employing the word primarily in vocation, and in a sense, boy, isn't I mean, in, in, in just how deceptive and slippery sin is, right? In, in, in a sense, there was there was slippage over time into using God and His Word to another end besides primarily that of enjoying God Himself. God became a means to and ends of vocation, professionalism. It's not only pastors who are at risk. We can all do the same. We can, we, can, we, can, we can all wait to use the word of God until the moment of desperation, and then we appeal to it like a talisman, right, of some kind. It's often too late at that point. Uh, third aspect of sin's deceptive appeal, not just a word contest. Kind of alluded to this a little bit, but 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 specifically a contest that seeks to facilitate slow, subtle drift 
an increment by increment compromise. Um, if, if the enemies of our soul went from zero to 60, the end would be too obvious, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't be nearly as deceivable. So friend, the world, the flesh, and the devil are playing the long game. Death by degree. They don't want you to see what's going on. And they know it's easier and more comfortable to make a compromise here and a compromise there. John Owen put it this way, a Puritan theologian. He said, sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. Here's the money. It's all really good, right? But this, the, the deceitfulness of sin, make sure you catch this, is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. If, if it showed you where it was going, you'd have no interest. But if it is just the drift of a this or that... Okay, so here, here's the takeaway. You cannot keep sin at bay by feeding it, not even a little bit. It's folly to think that I can indulge just a little bit of sin and not be changed into the kind of person who wants a little bit more next time. Verses 7 to 14, uh, we're going to now consider the countermeasures that the father exhorts the son uh, to, to employ. The first set of countermeasures, um, we could call these or, or, or recognize these as a defensive maneuver. So there's a, there's a defensive maneuver and an offensive maneuver. The offensive maneuver comes will come next, but the defensive maneuver now. So look again with me at verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Stay far, far away, the father says. Turn back from the path of false promises. You're not as strong. You're not as immune as you think you are. Do whatever radical thing you need to do, son, to cut off access to those honeyed words that go down to death. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Metaphorically, but do not the point. What do you need to do to keep your way far from Lady Folly? In whatever manner she would appeal to you. Years and years ago, uh, before the uh, advent of smartphones, I had a student who wanted to talk about this very issue. And uh, as a result of, of recognizing his vulnerability, decided to dump his personal laptop. It was a source of too much temptation to him. The inconvenience factor in his life went way up because now, in order to write papers or do assignments, he had to go to the computer lab, right, and work on his assignments in places that were public uh, at the hours prescribed in which the computer lab was open. Or he had to borrow a person's uh, laptop and work on that person's laptop in the company of the person. These were just some of the guidelines that, that he happened to set for himself. Inconvenience factor went way, way up. But what is convenience worth if it costs you everything? 
He knew he had to keep his way far. The father also helps the son to disabuse these deceptions by showing you the part that Lady Folly doesn't want you to see, and that is their outcome. He examines with the son exactly the part that she's trying to keep out of view. Look at verses 11 through 14 again. At the end of your life, so he's showing the end, right? If you go this way, at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Notice in these verses, the young man is not innocent because he was enticed. He doesn't think himself innocent. When he comes to his senses, he does not fundamentally blame Lady Folly, and he does not blame God. He makes no excuses. When he finally sees clearly, he blames himself. I embraced the wrong words. See, he has to have a heart that's willing to participate in its own self-deception. If he does not have that, then her words lose the contest. For all the heartache of verses 11 through 14, hope abides, even for those who have gone too far, which in some sense is all of us, right? And one of the chief metaphors for sin is that of spiritual adultery. But I take these words in verses 11 through 14, though bitter and groaning at the end of life, to still be a confession. So what if you've gone too far? Come back. Christ was delivered to the grave on account of our embrace of Lady Folly. His payment satisfies the debt. You just have to receive it with humble uh, confession and repentance. And I can tell you that it will hurt, but when it's over, you will be free. It reminds me uh, a lot of the scene um, from Voyage of the Dawn Treader. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where Eustace has turned himself into an ugly-scaled dragon by some ill-gotten treasure, and then, and then Aslan liberates him from his own captivity. Here's, what, here's the quote from, from that, that scene. This is Eustace talking. <clears throat> then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just laid down flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, still quoting, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. 
It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. End quote. What's the point there? The embrace of folly of all kinds is subhuman. It's not what we were made for. But there is a way to come back. So if you are this guy or gal today with bitter regret on the brink of ruin, I want you to know Jesus loves humbled sinners. And he loves to make repentant fools wise. Remember, Jesus himself was killed and mocked and publicly humiliated as a fool, despite the fact that he was not one. And he did that so that he could rescue, rescue fools and bring prodigals home. Defense to offense, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. Once we hit verse 15, the father's advice turns to offensive tactics. It does include a frankly erotic celebration of uh, marital sexual intimacy. The main point I want us to take away from that is that the father does not say here, and the gospel does not say anywhere, just don't do bad stuff. That's not, that's not the answer here. That's not, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is just stop being bad. That's not it. Right? There is always a better than. In marriage, better intimacy. The gospel promises better love, better delight. He is not calling us to less, but to more. So the first offensive exhortation is to delight. This is uh, verses 18 to 20. Delight in the wife of your youth. In a nutshell, this is dad's way of saying, drink the good stuff, son. Stop being so easily satisfied. In the last five verses, the word intoxicate is used three times. It's used uh, one time positively, twice negatively. It's used in verse 19. The father tells the son to get intoxicated in her love, to be drunk with delight. In verse 20, he contrasts that with the foolishness of being intoxicated with the forbidden woman, and then all the way down in verse 23, although your translation probably doesn't translate it the same way, it says he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is intoxicated, led astray, right? Mugged. Here's the point. The father says, fight the fire of false pleasure, with the fire of superior pleasure, the, fault, the false fire of hollow promises with the superior fire of proven promises. Note also the specific command in verse 18, rejoice in the wife of his youth, does not say to the son to rejoice in his wife while she is young. They're not, some, I mean, some, sometimes people... Tend to, tend to act that way, right? Here's what dad is saying to the son. Here's beauty. May you grow to find her more intoxicating on the day of your 50th wedding anniversary than you did on your wedding day. That's how beauty grows in the eyes of God. <clears throat> Perhaps 
and this is to, to those of us who are married, perhaps, uh, and I'm thinking of husbands in particular, some of us are not rejoicing in the wife of our youth as we ought. It is true that the nature of romantic love grows more stable and less torrid over time. There are some good reasons for that. But it is also possible that some of us have become complicit in letting our enthusiasm for the wife of our youth become more temperate than it should. Maybe, maybe some of that enthusiasm has diminished because the mental savoring has been focused elsewhere to other persons, perhaps, or images. Were it to go no farther, farther than that, Jesus, of course, says it's sin. And yet, as we've seen, sin is never so easily satisfied. Maybe some of us have allowed delight in the wife of our youth to, to, to dull into a more easily critical spirit. Maybe you more easily see frustrating flaws and have a harder time seeing what thrills the heart of God about your wife. So here's an assignment, a little homework. I'm a professor, so I can give homework. I guess you don't have to do it because I'm not going to be here next week, but you should do it. Your wife wants you to. Here's an assignment, husbands, for the next seven days, okay, between now and next Sunday. Ponder in prayer how your wife has loved you, served you, prayed for you, intertwined her life with yours, raised kids with you perhaps, suffered with you, and at times because of you. Ponder how she has received your confession, extended you forgiveness, pointed you time and again to the cross of Jesus. Don't keep that to yourself. Share that praise with her and get absolutely, as Dad says here, intoxicated on that kind of love. Now, as joyful as all that can be, even as it's mixed with hard, wisdom urges us ultimately in the direction of feasting on better blessings still that come in the unconditional love to which marriage ultimately points. Ray Ortland put it this way, the Bible is not shy about sex, and its message is clear. Sexual folly destroys, sexual wisdom satisfies, and Christ is better than the best sex. Because, of the, because the presence of God for the believer is the very best blessing of all. You see this down in verse 21. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all of his paths. Right? This, this is life quorum deo for the believer. Conscientiously, intentionally, purposefully aware of the fact that I live each of my moments in the company of God before the face of God. The son who embraces wisdom before the Lord then is the kind who flees the immorality that is mentioned here. The one who would embrace folly, on the other hand, attempts what is truly foolish. The attempt to flee the presence and the gaze of God so as to intoxicate oneself with poison. And that's the, uh, that's the oldest response to our sin and folly, isn't it? The attempt to hide from God. It cannot be done, but is instinctive. Contrast that the attempt to hide. Remember the story of Joseph, Genesis 39. This guy had literal, repeated run-ins with the forbidden woman, Potiphar's wife. 
And he was able to stand in the face of this very temptation. He faced the same lures of potentially getting away with it. But because his heart was vigilantly kept, he would say, this is Genesis 39.9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Nobody else was there to see. The only, the only, the only person's perspective that mattered to him was the Lord's. So dad wants the heart of his son to grow strong, like Joseph's. If his heart is rooted in wisdom before God and fulfilled in better love, he will have no taste for bitter fruit. So how specifically is the word warning you this morning, be it sexual immorality or otherwise? Where are you resisting the humility of fleeing and repenting? Where might you think yourself strong when in fact you're weak, sighted, when perhaps we're blind, indulging the attempt to hide, cultivate self-pity, play with fire. I'm not sure who I'm talking today, but God does, and he wants you to turn back. And I want you to take these warnings as words of mercy and love. Let me offer a final word to the fallen, even if no one else knows yet. You are not alone if this is true of you, and you are not beyond the reach of God's love. One pastor put it like this. There is no sin too great to be forgiven, but it cannot be forgiven while it is being justified and hidden. When it comes to sexual immorality, the beginning appears to be sweet. Our passage tells us when you look at coming to Jesus for the first time or coming back to Jesus after the embrace of folly, the beginning looks like death. Death to self, dying with Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that the end is incomprehensibly sweet and utterly worth it. If you turn to him who is crushed for your folly, you'll have what you cannot give yourself and what none of us deserves. You will be simultaneously known and perfectly loved by God. That's the good news. So we'll turn here uh, in a moment to our closing worship. As we do, I just want to encourage you, wives, pray for your husbands this week. Husbands, pray for your wives this week. Parents, pray for children. Pray for the generations who have yet to feel the weight of these temptations and don't even understand the weight of today's words. Married people, pray for the single people in the church. Single people, pray for the married people in the church. Some may need to confess that you're more vulnerable than you previously thought. And I know that the leadership of your church would love to partner with you, be available uh, to you, to encourage you, even, even as those who might have broken themselves. So I want you to know that if your head is spinning right now and you have no idea what to do, take the first step in coming back. There are folks here who can help. I would be delighted to speak with you after the service. I know Oscar's not in town today, but Jason would and the other leaders of the church would as well. Um, the women who, uh, who facilitate the women's ministries, we'd be happy to do what we can to, to assist you, to encourage you, to walk alongside of you on the path that looks like death but ends in life. Amen.